Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas, dear friends. Good to see you stayed warm. From the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for so this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may come to him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child lay. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming in the house, they saw the child with the mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another way. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and younger, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This was what was said through the prophets Jeremiah and was so fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child, his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the town of Nazareth, 
so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Let us pray. Lord, there's something to be learned from bad people. Teach us what that is today. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. There are two sides to a coin. There are two sides to every story. And there are two sides to Christmas. One side is the positive side. Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise man, Anna and Simeon. And this is where we preachers mostly dwell in the Christmas season. But the other side, the side of the innkeeper and the Pharisees and nasty old King Herod, that's a side we often ignore. And there's something to be learned from both sides. But today, let's see what life there is to be lived in the story of King Herod. So first of all, who was King Herod? His name Herod means in the Greek, sprung from a hero. Whatever that means, sprung from a hero. In 70 BC, Rome had conquered Israel and all of the local leaders scrambled for power in the new Roman occupying government. And we're told in history that in 60 BC, Herod rose in the ranks. He was murdered in 43 BC though, and his son took his place, his son who was to be called Herod the Great, or Herod the Second actually, but Herod the Great. His was a 33 year reign in Palestine from 37 BC to the birth of Christ in 4 BC. Now so successful was Herod that he was called King of the Jews. But did you know that Herod was not Jewish? He was an Indomean. When Israel passed through the wilderness from Egypt into Palestine to become a nation, there were people in the wilderness who withstood Israel and tried to block their passage. The Indomeans were a part of that group. Now Herod was a great builder. When the temple was destroyed by the Romans, or the Babylonians rather, it was rebuilt as Solomon's second temple, but it was a poor temple. Herod, to ingratiate himself with the Jews, enlarged the temple and built it on a grander scale. His was the temple that Jesus would have visited. He also built Caesarea by the sea. Now to understand Caesarea by the sea, you've got to see Herod as the biggest suck-up in history. Uh, to please Caesar, he built a giant seaport. And what would he name this state-of-the-art seaport? Caesars by the sea. Caesarea by the sea. If you go there, it's quite amazing. The aqueduct, the fortifications, right on the Mediterranean. Do you know he developed hydroponic cement that would harden underwater? It was an incredible technological advancement. And he built it to honor Caesar and so aggrandize himself to him and entrench his position as the king of the Jews. He also built Masada, the Alamo of the Jewish people. And if you're in Jerusalem and you look six miles to the south towards Bethlehem, you'll see a flat top mountain 
and it's called the Herodium. That's where Herod is buried. He was paranoid, and he was so afraid that if he were to be overthrown, he would live a violent death, and he didn't want that. So he built a Roman fort high enough to look over into the temple. If trouble was going to start in Israel, it would go there. And he could flee six miles to the Herodium and live there for a while until the getting was good, and then he could go out into the wilderness at Masada and so defend his life. He was a, a clever, clever man. But he was also an absolute despot. There was no constitution. There was no appeal to his court. His will was the law. Now, Herod, Herod was also paranoid. He was so afraid that his wife was plotting to usurp his throne that he had her put to death. And of his many sons, there were two of them, he thought, sure, were preparing to take over his kingdom and push that out to an early grave. And so he put his two sons to death. Now, this type of behavior called Caesar to say of Herod, it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his family members. Pig has a longer lifespan. Yet this man had a wonderful Greek education. He was a visionary builder. He was a very cultured man, an incredible organizer. So who was this man? The son of a murdered father, a Roman puppet king in Palestine, a great builder, and a paranoid despot. Now Herod had three sons that survived him. And so acorns don't fall far from the tree. At his death, King Herod saw that his kingdom was divided into thirds, and a child began to rule each of those sections. Herod Archelaus ruled in the deep south of Israel for 10 years, but was banished by Rome for misrule. Herod Philip ruled in the north. He was the best of the three brothers, and he ruled till 34 AD. And then Herod Antipas, the divorcee who wed his half-brother and had John the baptizer say, it's incestuous, you don't do that. And so he cut John the baptizer's head off. He's the one that Christ called an old fox and said, I'm not afraid of you. He's the one that presided at Jesus' trial. And in 39 AD, he was banished by the Roman Empire for misrule. Now, after the three brothers died, there was a fourth generation Herod, Herod Agrippa. He was the first to persecute the early church. He killed James, the brother of Jesus, with the sword. He jailed Peter, intending to do the same thing. But he died at age 34. The book of Acts says that he made a speech, and the citizens hearing his speech, wanting to build his ego up, appraised him as if his voice was the voice of God. And Herod Agrippa accepted that type of worship and praise as if he indeed was God. And the book of Acts says, an angel smote him, and he fell down and spilt open, and the worms ate him. I don't know what he had, but I don't think that disease exists in Southside Virginia. But I certainly don't want to invite it here. Now, it's against the backdrop of these four generations of Herod that the Christmas story unfolds. 
So we've asked who was Herod, not one man, but a four-generation family who all bore the name Herod. The second question, what did Herod do? Now, look at the story of the wise men coming to visit. They stumble into Herod's palace in Jerusalem, and what do they ask? Where is he born king of the Jews? This was not a wise thing to do. Remember, this man is paranoid schizophrenic. He's killed his wife. He's killed two of his own children. Even though he's an old man and this pretended king, Jesus, is born as a baby, he's so delusional that he turns pale green. King of the Jews? He gets a star? I got no star at my birth. There is no king of the Jews but me. And the Bible says that Herod was troubled. You know the saying, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? When King Herod was not happy, the Bible says, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. So he interviewed the wise men. What time did the star appear? And he called his rabbis together. He, he didn't know the Bible himself. But he called the rabbis together and he said, where is it written that this Jewish Messiah would be born? And they quoted a book that's very little preached on or even read today, the book of Micah, the fifth chapter, verse 2. And they told him Micah predicted Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, uh, Beth means house, and Lehem is the Jewish word for bread. So Bethlehem means city of bread. It was the breadbasket of Israel, fertile ground. So Jesus, who would grow up to call himself the bread of life, was born in the city of bread, and he was born in a cattle feed trough in a manger. You can't make this up, the beauty of the scripture. Now there's a detail I don't want you to miss here that I think America needs to hear today. The wise men were probably Zoroastrians, practitioners of one of the oldest religions. They lived a very outdoors life, and their life was impinged upon by raw nature. They often sat all night in their ziggurats, watching the constellations wheel overhead. They were familiar with sunrises and sunsets and comets and constellations and cold nights and beautiful sunrises. Now, John Donne said of nature that nature is God's greatest evangelist. Herod, however, was not an outdoors person. He was an indoors person. He wouldn't even leave his palace and walk six miles to Bethlehem to see the boy king born. He wouldn't even walk out to the front porch of his palace and say, where is the star? He sits on his throne in his house with a roof over it, feeling like he's enough, he's everything Israel needs, and he says, you go and you search for the child, and when you find him, come and tell me that I too might go and worship him. Now, when I sit in my study today as a modern American, and I'm cold, do you see this finger? I can do that on a thermostat, and it will warm my house. If it's getting too warm with this same finger, I can do the same thing and it will cool my study down. I can use this finger on the refrigerator and get fresh ice 
in my drink. I can use the same finger to push a button and have a pizza delivered by phone. With this single solitary finger, I can rule the world inside my house. I can push buttons with this finger, and I can have what the richest man in the world, the Tsar of Russia, never had. The Chicago Symphony can play a box Christmas oratorio to me, and no Tsar ever had that power. I can begin to think, if I can do all this with this finger, what could I do with the rest of my body? I'm a tough somebody. But when I get out in nature, I begin to realize that this finger is not omnipotent. It's not very powerful at all. I was going through the Grand Canyon and we made a serious mistake of camping by Hermit Falls. Hermit Falls is a, a dip in the river of about 35 feet where tons of water uh, per second just fly through this granite gorge. And because so much water is trying to squeeze through this narrow gorge, it can't lap up on the shore on either side. It can't dig deeper because it's granite. All it can do is push upward. And so you have 14 power waves that are 16 feet each on that part of the river. And we camped beside it. Let me tell you, the roar of that river at night gets in a man's psyche. <laughs> and you wake up the next morning and you realize, I paid for this. I've got to go through that waterfall. There is no way under heaven that that's survivable. First of all, the water's 47 degrees. And it's morning. I don't want to be splashed to 47 degree weather even though the day is going to reach 100 degrees in temperature, I'd just like to stay dry, thank you. Well, the call comes, and you load the boat, and you hit those power waves. And 21 people on a raft that weighs several tons fly like a chip over those falls, down in the slough, going fully airborne, and down the next one. It is a ride like nothing else, but I'm not in control not even with all ten fingers. And nature has a way of cowering you, of putting you in your place, of letting you know it's not all about you, that you're a part of creation, but you're a wee part of creation. And you have no problem in your ego realizing, I'm not God, and I'm not going to pretend to be. This was the wise men and what they learned from their outdoor life. But Herod, the indoorsman, thought he was somebody, and immune from nature, he was the ruler of all he knew and saw inside his wee palace, where the wise men come and, and they give their gifts to Jesus, and in God's providence, they funded the flight to Egypt. Joseph, being a poor carpenter, had only planned for a few nights stay in Bethlehem and then right back up to Nazareth. But to be expulsed out of the country and have to live as an immigrant, he was too poor for that. But it was the first Christmas gifts that allowed that immigrant to take his wife to safety. Now, the wise men were warned in a dream that Herod's a dangerous man. You go back to him, he'll probably kill you. So you won't tell any story of the Messiah being born in a star. 
and he's also going to seek the child and cure it. So the wise man warned in the dream, returned home by a different way to Persia. Now when Herod heard this, he was enraged, and he hatched a plot, one of the most diabolical plots in the Bible. He would go into Bethlehem with his troops and kill every boy child two years old and under. Now nobody knows how many children that was. Bethlehem was a small town, much, much, much smaller than South Boston. And when you measure the aqueducts and the water cisterns and, and some of the granaries that are still there and archeological finds, you can extrapolate how much food they had, how much water they had, how many people that could sustain. And some people think the number of children that he killed was between 20 and 30 boys. All of Israel began to mourn this incredible ugliness in King Herod. Now, we've asked who was Herod and what did he do? Now, let's ask a third question. Why did he do it? Why did he go after Christ and try to kill him? Zoologists tell me that wild animals have what we call a fight-flee line. If you get close to a bear and surprise him, he'll attack you. But if he sees you coming, he'll only stand on his hind legs and roar at you and probably flee. But if you get too close, he won't run. He'll fight you. And it's what we call in zoology the fight-flee line. I tested this out, not meaning to, on a horseback ride a couple of years ago up near Brevard, North Carolina. Uh, we were coming upwind to the top of a hill, and there was a bobcat sitting, enjoying the view on the other side of that hill, and he couldn't smell us or hear us because the wind was in his face, and we were coming up behind him downwind. When we crested the hill with those six horses, that bobcat saw us and jumped in nine different directions. But we had crossed his fight flea line, and he wasn't ready to run yet. So what did he do? He charged right at my horse. Now, horses are skittish creatures, and that bobcat, have you ever heard one shriek? Oh, it can curdle your blood. He let out a shriek and widened his paws and jumped right at the chest of my horse. My horse reared up, kicking, and went straight up the side of the mountain. I think every horse went in a different direction. The fight flea line is very real. And the fight can be violent. And the flea can be swift and easy. Now, what we need to realize and understand as Christians is the core of the Christmas message is the story of an invasion of God in our world. He crosses the threshold of our flight flea line. He crosses it with light. He crosses it with truth. He crosses it with mercy. He crosses it calling for accountability. Have you ever noticed what happens when you walk in your basement and cut the light on? What do the rats do? They flee. What do the cockroaches do? They run for the dark corners. There's your flea there. But uh, we need to understand that God has crossed the line with us. And we need to ask ourselves, will I fight or will I flee? 
Look at some historical accounts of human response. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They heard the sound of God walking in the cool of the evening, crossing their fight-flee line. And what did they do? They were naked. They were ashamed of their sin. They fled. I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I hid myself because I was afraid. If you read the story of the battle of Megiddo yet to be fought, the last battle in human history, the Battle of Armageddon, it talks about a valley in the northern part of Israel that's bowl-shaped. There's one way in from the north, from Europe. There's one way out from the south to Africa and the Near East. And the armies are going to march into that bowl, the armies of righteousness, of Christ, and the armies of the wicked. And they're going to fight there. And the Bible says there that the blood will be bridal deep on a horse. It's going to be a fight to the finish. What do people do in the last times when God crosses the fight flea line? Instead of running like Adam and Eve, they're going to try to kill him. The Antichrist, the God-haters. Now, many of the other stories in the Bible are the story of people who didn't fight and flee, but the story of those who stayed to worship him. I have a new grandson, James, and I asked little Thomas, his older brother, this year when James was born, tell me about your brother. Well, he's got mama's eyes, he's got daddy's chin, and he's got my bed. <laughs> and he, he was not very happy about that. Now this brings us to something we don't talk enough about. It's a concept called biblical stewardship. It says in the book of 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, this is how one should think of us as stewards of the mysteries of God and as servants. The word stewardship there is economia. We get our word economy or economics from there. God has invested in you three things, time, talent, and money or resources for ministry. These things don't belong to you. God is the original venture capitalist who creates you and says, I think this man, this woman might have something. I'm going to invest in them time, talent, resources, that they can build up the kingdom of God, not their own little kingdom. And so the concept of biblical stewardship understands that in the economy of God, all things came from him, they're his now, and they will return to him. And none of us say anything is ours. We don't talk about my career or my car, or my house or my bank account. Uh, the stewardship that God has given me, I manage. Not for my ease in a world of pain, but for the glory of God in a world that needs ministry. And I manage it for him, and therefore I hold it with an open palm. Herod didn't know anything about stewardship. His favorite word was mine, and he was greedy and grasping and not willing to let go. So we've asked, who is Herod? What did he do? Why did he do it? And now let's ask a fourth question. 
Aren't we all a little bit like Herod? Popper Doc in Haiti, Jinping in Beijing, Kim in Korea, the cruel boss at work, your next door neighbor. There's no king but me. And with this finger, I rule. And everything that I have is mine. And I will destroy all opposition to that. Look at the incredible delusion. The Bible teaches that Jesus was probably born uh, in September. We think he was conceived at Hanukkah, which was last night also. Uh, but we think he was conceived uh, somewhere in the uh, Hanukkah season and that he was born in September because shepherds were abiding in the field and they only do that in the summer and fall. Uh, it snows. It gets terribly cold in Israel. I've been in Jerusalem and seen it snow two feet before and nobody was going outside to camp. So Jesus was probably born somewhere in that time and uh, he was probably born when Quirinius uh, ruled that part of the world and Caesar Augustus uh, the book of Luke says, was probably the king then. You put all that together, he was born somewhere between 3 and 4 B.C. Herod died in 4 B.C. He probably was dead within a year after Christ's birth, and his son came to rule in his place. But here's an old man, full of years, not going to live much longer, who finds out the king of the Jews has been born. Thinking that he will live forever, and in his delusion, I will kill that child and hold on to my king for all eternity. Oh, there's so many people delusional like that in the world today, but not all have been like that. Not all fight and not all flee. Do you remember John the baptizer? He built his ministry up to really be something. And when he baptized Jesus, do you remember his crowd left him and went to follow Jesus? And his disciples, unplussed about it, said, John, don't you see that all of your followers are leaving to follow your cousin? Do you remember what John said? He must increase, but I must decrease. You don't get that much in church today, do you? Or there's Barnabas and Paul's story that's another picture of this. Barnabas, name means son of encouragement. Uh, he was in the real estate business, we think, because he gave a piece of land to the church. He was also from the island of Cyprus. Now, on the first mission journey, John Mark and Saul, not called Paul yet, and Barnabas went on the first mission journey from present-day Lebanon to the church in Antioch where believers were first called Christians. And it's because the elders laid their hands on these men, that the gospel came eventually to Europe. But if you read it, it, it says Barnabas and Saul did thus and so. And Barnabas and Saul did this, that, and the other. But rather abruptly on the island of Cyprus, when some conflict came and John Mark quit and went back to the ease of the church in Lebanon, the order changes and they dropped the name Saul and began to call him Paul, which is his nickname, a Latin word meaning shorty. And they changed the order. Instead of Barnabas and Paul, 
It's so Paul and Barnabas did this. Paul and Barnabas did that. And most people who study the Bible for leadership examples say there's the leadership of Barnabas. The older man that sees the youthful vigor of a younger man. The man that sees one of his disciples has grown so that he deserves his own shot at leadership. And I'm going to get out of the way. And it's a beautiful expression of that happening in Scripture. Well, the wise men were also those who refused to fight or flee. They came to Christ and just took one look at Mary and the baby and fell on their knees. And they opened their treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, each of us finds ourselves this Christmas day in the incredible drama of the wise men and Herod and the birth of Christ. We're all on our own journey, aren't we? And God has crossed our fight flee line, and he's looking to see what your response will be. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for the light that comes from Herod's life, even though it was a light of life of darkness. Cause us, Lord, to not run away from you or to fight you, but to stay and kneel at your feet and learn from you and to be part of this wonderful drama. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I see our uh, closing hymn is Silent Night. I, I can't resist telling you the story uh, behind it very briefly. Joseph Moore uh, was an illegitimate child of a mother who already had two illegitimate children. Uh, his father was a soldier who had a dalliance in Austria with the mother, Anna Schoenberg, and left her pregnant and went off to war and was never heard of again. When the little boy was born uh, illegitimately with no father, she had trouble baptizing in the church. And she finally talked the town executioner into standing in as a godfather for his baptism. But at the last minute, the church wouldn't let him in because executioners weren't allowed in church. And so the executioner found one of his friends and sobered him up enough to stand in as his father. As the little boy grew, he had a wonderful musical voice, uh, but he loved the taverns and the tavern songs and the, just the joy of art. But his lungs were weak. Uh, the priest who saw something in him saw to his priestly education, and he was ordained. But he was too sickly to have the stamina to be a pastor of a church, so he became an interim pastor. Uh, he was a kind of a backbencher, third stringer, who was sent into the church when a pastor died until a more permanent, effective priest could be brought in. This is what led him to a short pastorate in the Church of St. Nicholas in Oberberg, Austria. And it was there in the uh, early 1800s when he showed up for a Christmas Eve service and they began to punch the organ and no sound came. And they studied what was wrong with it, and a mouse had eaten a hole in the leather bellows to get the flavor out of it. Well, what could be done? There was to be no music in the church. Uh, Joseph Moore sat down and very quickly produced a poem, uh, kind of a lullaby, 
that has a progression of light in it that's absolutely beautiful, the light in the face of Christ that goes out to Bethlehem and the whole world finally bathed with this light. Uh, his musician friend put it to guitar music, to a lullaby, and they sang it that night. Well, the people didn't like it. Using a guitar in church instead of an organ was an indiscretion. So the music was quickly forgotten and stuck up on the shelf. Uh, it would be years later that the organ broke again and some Tyrolean organ repairmen came through, fixed the organ, found the sheet music and thought it had something to it. And he took it out to the other Tyrolean folk singers who gave it to Germany. And it's literally gone around the world and is considered uh, the Christmas song that's best written, everybody's favorite one. Well, what happened to Joseph Moore? He went on to serve in other 10 uh, impermanent situations as a church. His uh, weakness increased as he got older until he couldn't hardly breathe, and he had to give up singing. He had gone out to give last rites to a woman in the dead of winter, and coming back that night in his overcoat with his bare head, he got soaking wet, got pneumonia, and died. He buried in an unmarked grave. Uh, the only thing that we have left was his much patched overcoat and a very worn out guitar. We know that he wrote many other Christmas hymns and hymns of the faith, but none of them exist. They're all lost to history. All we have is silent night. In one ineffable moment, this man rose like a lark into the upper reaches of heaven, and with the angels wrote a song that's worthy of Christ at his birth. And then he fell back to earth again, never to rise so high. Someday when you get to heaven, you're going to see a saintly old priest sitting in a corner, beginning to eat his lunch. And somebody's going to say, you know who that is? That's Joseph Moore. And you're going to have to beat me to his side, because I'm going to say, let's go talk to him. Silent Night. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.